Let's go ahead and begin, of course, with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open ourselves, our hearts, our minds, to you. It is you that we ultimately seek, and it is you, through your Son, that is given to us in the Mass. And so we ask that you open our hearts, that we may more truly encounter you, and come to greater communion with you, which is what you desire for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thank you all for joining. Last session, if you remember, we went through all of the introductory rites. And what were the introductory rites about? They were all about simply getting ready. Getting ready for the other portions of the Mass. And so we began with coming to attention and standing and singing as Christ, the priest, processed in. We signed ourselves with the sign of our salvation. We began in the name of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because what other way can we begin this beautiful liturgy? We then pause because we recognize that we have sinned and we need to have reconciliation before we approach our Lord in the penitential rite. And so we ask him for his mercy. We acknowledge that we have this need. And then in the Gloria, outside of the penitential season, we acknowledge that God has answered our need, that God has answered our call. And so the priest then, through the collect, gathers all of us, our prayers, our petitions, all that are present. He offers them to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And now we are seated. We sit as the posture to receive Christ in the scriptures. Because what we hear isn't something to be taken lightly. Recall that Israel prepared three days before God spoke the covenant words to them. They themselves prepared. And so we are now prepared. Because this hearing the word of God is serious business. Because it's not just words about God or some story, but it is God's speech. It's his very essence included in here. For Christ, God is the word of God. Word is part of the essence of who God is, where he breaks out of himself into time, into humanity, and all that is unfolding in creation. And so what is the story that we hear in the scriptures? It can be summarized by what's termed the kerygma, which is a fancy word for basically what God is doing. It is the event of God's love. That is all of scripture is a single event. It is the event of God's love. And so how do we understand that? What is the kerygma? A very easy way to remember it is we were made for communion with God, Sin destroyed this communion, so God sent his son down to be reconciled with us and invite us back into communion with him, but we have to respond. That is the event. That is God's love. And so the Holy Spirit has spent all these centuries crafting by divine inspiration through these human authors this truth to us. And so we receive this truth not just 
by ourselves, by our own power, but it is God himself that allows us to receive the truth. Just as we hear Jesus tell Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so before we can receive Jesus truly in the Eucharist, we have to sit at the table of his word, that our hearts may be softened. Because sin is rooted, if you look in the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis, it's a failure to rightly discern and respond to God's word. We break that communion. But it is what we were created for, to receive God's word, to hear God, and to respond. And so when we hear the scriptures, it is as if God is sending us that note communicating to us, ultimately, his plan of sabotage. This, in this reign of sin, the devil's reign, here he intercedes and sabotages that which sin caused. So the scriptures are organized in such a way that correspond with the liturgical season in a three-year cycle. And they generally are organized so that in a year you hear the totality of salvation history. So we begin, we have our first reading, which generally comes from the Old Testament, although Acts of the Apostles can be included in there. We have the Psalms, our response to the first reading, the New Testament, which tells us how the church responded to salvation. And then we have the gospel, the climax of all of scripture. So our first reading is taken generally from the Old Testament, unless we're talking about the Easter season, which then we get the Acts of the Apostles. We begin here because we can't adequately understand Jesus and God's relationship with us without understanding the history and the lengths that God went through to get us to the point that the word would become flesh, and that he would die for our sins. Within these Old Testament readings, we hear our lives. Our lives are patterned similarly to that of God's chosen people, the ebb and flow, the falling away and coming back. Our lives are wrapped up like this. And so we sit, however, where God's faithful before we sit in a very unique, special position because we don't just hear these scriptures proclaimed, but we get the unique perspective of hearing them with the insight of the risen Lord. We become those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has risen from the dead. They've heard some of their fellow brothers have seen him risen. Christ encounters them. They don't recognize him. And what does Christ initially do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament now revealed in the new, and the new understood with the Old Testament. And so a magnificent thing is occurring in our first reading, where we hear God speak his love to us. And this is given to us by the readers, right? For those of you that do this, the great dignity that is bestowed upon you, it's a privilege that you have by your baptism that you allow yourself to be an instrument to the life-giving word of God announced to this assembly. And so the first reading ends with the word of the Lord. 
these divine writings. This was the word proclaimed. And so these words should be like a trumpet blast, an explosion, the word of the Lord. We just heard in our day, today, God speak. How else could we respond but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God of what just happened. What a privilege. These words, thanks be to God, taken from Paul himself. We sit in awe of what just transpired. And so this should be followed with a brief but important moment of silence to sit in awe. That the word that we just heard proclaim has a chance to take root, that it does not become word that falls on our soul and is swept up like from the birds of prey, but it has a chance to take root in our souls. And then we speak again. The motion shifts. In the first reading, God is speaking to us, and then in the Psalms, we respond to him. We speak to him. And this is one of the earliest traditions of the church. And we hear about it even in Scripture. St. Paul tells his followers, sing psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we see this tradition in the apostolic times in very Scripture. And where did Paul get this? Well, Paul was a faithful Jew, and this is how Jews prayed, especially in the temple. So if this is how Jews prayed, who's the most faithful of all the Jews? Jesus. This is how Jesus prayed. He prayed the Psalms, taught these Psalms by Mary and Joseph from his youth. And so we echo Jesus' prayer, and we hear in his passion, right? What prayer does Jesus use but Psalm 22? As he's hanging, dangling on the cross, dying, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And so we make the words, the prayer of God, our own, because how else can we properly respond to God speaking to us, but with inspired words back to him? And it's beautifully led by the cantor, who is selected in somebody different from those that do the readings, not just for talent, although that might be part of the purpose, <coughs> but also because there's a shift in motion. It's not God speaking to us, but us speaking to God. And so the cantor leads us in this. The cantor sings first as Christ. We, as the church, then join our voices to Christ to sing praise to God the Father. This dialogue of a response back to God, which also, again, echoes what the Jews did. They had this twofold dialogue, this alternating groups when they would sing the Psalms. After having the word of God spoken to us and us responding, we shift back. We hear God again speaking to us. Now, where our first reading and our gospel generally tie to one another, that is not the case with the second reading. 
The second reading is generally something that's independent of the gospel in the Old Testament. And why is that? Because when you read the letters of the apostles, there's really but one sole focus. Paul, for example, he doesn't preach about anything other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't see him going on and on about the miracles and the cures that Jesus did. The duplication of the loaves. He doesn't even mention that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He preaches Christ crucified. And that is why the letters that we read are generally older than the Gospels themselves. Because the Gospels themselves didn't develop until there began this need of an extended narrative of God's life. Why? Of Christ's life. Why? To avoid it becoming a, a, some kind of abstraction. Death and resurrection being this abstraction. But no, they needed this narrative that says, no, God became man. He walked the earth. We are witnesses of what he did. And here is what he did. But it all culminates in the Paschal mystery, in Jesus' death and resurrection. So what we get in the second reading is the consequences of this. Our first reading gives us as God is preparing his people that he may take flesh and save them. Our second reading tells us the consequences, how the church needs to respond to this great event, what the repercussions are. Because we are the very same church that Paul and the other apostles are speaking to. There's nothing else left to be revealed once Jesus Christ has come. And so we again respond to this event, the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Silence again. We wait in silence for the priest's cue. Where again, we rise to our feet and we begin singing either the gospel acclamation or the alleluia, which means praise the Lord. We stand because we welcome Jesus once again, just as we did at the beginning of Mass. Because the Lord, the risen Lord's presence now intensifies as the word of God, the gospel, is about to be proclaimed. Now hidden to your ears is this very special prayer that takes place. If there is no deacon present, the priest, as he faces the altar, prays, Cleanse my heart and my lips, Almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. Now if there is a deacon, it is proper that the deacon proclaims the gospel. And so I ask Father for his blessing. I bow before him, and he prays over me. May the Lord be in your heart and on your lips, that you may proclaim his gospel worthily and well, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What I am about to do is not something that I can take lightly. I need this blessing, this grace, to simply proclaim God's word to the people in this instant. And we do this with great solemnity. I don't even just walk up and take the book of the Gospels from the altar. I'm accompanied 
my candles for the solemnity of what is to take place. Then I take the word of God from the altar, which was sat there in preparations for us to feast on, and I take it to the ambo that it now be feasted upon. And I begin, the Lord be with you. As we talked about last week, the importance of these words, what does it do? Well, again, it recognizes that number one, God is here present within each one of his faithful. That where two or three are gathered, right? God is there in his present, in our presence. But now, I say these words again, the Lord be with you, because God now comes in a new way, a substantial way, as the word. The Lord, the word of God, be with you. He is with us. To which the congregation responds, and with your spirit. And again, this is not simply a right back at you, <laughs> but it has very much deeper meaning because it means that you recognize in me, by the virtue of my ordination, what God has done to me, to my soul. That God, upon ordination, placed a mark in my soul that God can directly communicate to you through me. That's amazing. And you recognize what God has done, not who I am, but what God has done, what I was very well ordained for, to be able to do this task. And so I begin a reading from the Holy Gospel according to, and as I do this, I'm signing the book with the cross. I am blessing the very words, the very page in Scripture, in the Gospels, that we are going to encounter Christ. So I cross that, and then we all respond, Glory to you, O Lord, and we consecrate ourselves. May the Lord, may the Word be in my mind, in my thoughts, and on my lips, and rest in my heart. And then this unique gospel is proclaimed. And yes, I say unique gospel. Now, haven't you heard probably these stories before? Haven't you heard these words before? So what do I mean by unique? This is new. This is truly new when we hear these words. It's because the events that we are hearing Though we sit here in Olathe, they are happening now. They are happening now because these words, this gospel, has never pro been proclaimed to this community within this context, with these circumstances that we find ourselves in. So in a real sense, this has never happened before. In hearing the gospel, Jesus' life is made present. We are mystically transported to when and where this is taking place. Yes, we seem to be sitting here in Olathe, but we are there as the woman is cured. We are there when Jesus is chastising the Pharisees. We are there as Jesus is hanging on the cross 
And he cries out, I thirst. He's thirsting now here for you and me. It is not something 2,000 years ago. It is happening now. And so at the end, I end it, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. What other response could we have for what we just witnessed? What we were just present for? Praise to you for that healing. Praise to you, Lord God, for the duplication of loaves. Praise to you for dying and rising from the dead. Praise to you for these events that I just witnessed. And then there's again another silent prayer that you don't hear. Because then I end with reverencing the gospel with a kiss. Either myself or the priest. If he proclaims it or if the bishop, we take it over to him. And that's why there's that awkward, some people sit and some people stand. Because we don't sit until the bishop reverences the gospel. And as we do so, we pray these powerful words through the words of the gospel, may our sins be wiped away. Now the gospel is followed, of course, by the homily. And this is something that must be given by the ordained. Why? Because it gives us, the congregation, the guarantee that the church's apostolic faith is what should be being passed on. It doesn't mean that we are the best preachers doesn't mean that we are the best public speakers, but it gives you that apostolic guarantee because whose responsibility is it for giving the homily? The bishop. So for us, it's Archbishop Nauman. He is responsible for the homily. But he, in his authority, he delegates that to us priests and deacons. And thus, Archbishop Nauman has explicitly given me the authority, the right to be able to preach, to give the homily to share in his responsibility that I may do it, but only doing it in communion with him. And the word homily means explanation. And it is a custom, again, that we see going back, predating Christ. Because we see, actually, Jesus Christ participating in this, right? He goes to the synagogue amongst his people, he proclaims scripture, he sits down, and all the eyes are fixed on him, right? Until he finally says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's where this comes from, this teaching. Because after the gospel, this is the foremost place for Christian instruction. And that's because it is scripture that drives the message of the homily. What's the difference between a sermon and a homily? We usually use them interchangeably. But a sermon, I decide what I want to talk about. Not too dissimilar from what we're doing right now. I decide the topic, and then I can support that topic with scripture, with church teaching, with whatever I want. But I'm the one formulating the message. This is not the case for the homily. The homily is supposed to be driven by the word of God. Where the homilist 
should state with Scripture and make this term their own, that when they preach, when they teach, my teaching is not my own, but it's from the one who sent me. And so this is a gift that we receive from Pentecost. And so it would behoove you, and I would ask you to pray for your homilists. <laughs> pray for those that are going to preach to you. Because it's our job, it's our duty, before we get up here, to have spent this week chewing and consuming the Word of God. We consume the Word of God in the context of today and the needs of the congregation. That it be the Word that comes into me, and that it be then the Word, Jesus Christ, that comes out. And so it is something that I know I and all of us take very, very seriously. Because the best way I can put it is, it seems to me to be a very dangerous game to speak for God. So pray for us. That we have something to say and that we can truly share what God wants you to hear. And so of all the places then in Scripture, this is the most appropriate place that we get that sacred silence afterwards. We have heard the word of God in the Gospels proclaimed to us. We've heard how the word is supposed to apply to our lives, how we are to respond. So we need to take a moment to let that soak in and take root inside of us. But the liturgy of the word is not over yet. There are still two steps left before we finish. Next, it's followed by the Creed, which is essentially a summary of Scripture in a single page. And I can't get into all the details of the Creed. A big portion of the Catechism goes through that. <laughs> but it essentially tells us the Scripture that we heard, it allows us to understand how these pieces fit together in the puzzle. The Creed gives us all of that. And in saying the Creed, we, number one, whether we are cognizant of it or not, we recognize that, and we say that we are in a cosmic, invisible battle. That we are in a war. And that there are only two sides to the war. There's no neutral ground. We are either on the side of Christ, or we are on the side of the enemy. Which side are we on? We make the definitive statement, as for me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We go back to our baptism where we received the faith, our baptismal vows that we renew. I believe in God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. And so there are two aspects to our belief. Number one is the intellectual side. It's a list of what it is that we believe as Catholics. <clears throat> This is what it means to be Catholic. It's a description. And so when we say this, we cannot be saying that I believe all of this, all of these 99 precepts except this one. No, it can't be 99 out of 100. It has to be all. We say, I believe in everything that the church teaches. But we also state whom it is that we entrust ourselves to. Who do we believe in? 
Because if I were to look at you and say these words, I believe in you. I believe in you. We know that those are more than words, right? It's a statement of, I believe that you can do this. You are who I am trusting. And so we turn to God in our entirety of our faith and we say, I believe that this is my only path to salvation. I believe you can do this for me, that you did do this for me. I accept it, I repent, and I walk forward a new man or a new woman. We solidify it with a great amen, the same belief that has existed through all of the centuries. And then finally, the last step in the liturgy of the word, we end with the prayers of the faithful, or otherwise sometimes termed the universal prayers, which is another ancient part of the Mass. And this is really cool because each one of you, when you were baptized, you were baptized as a priest. You have a baptismal priesthood. You may never have known that, and you may also wonder when you would ever exercise this. Right here in the prayers of the faithful, this is where you exercise your priesthood. Because it is the responsibility of the baptized to live in the world and then bring before God in prayer the needs of the church and word, world. And this is why the prayers of the faithful are not done by a priest. They are done by a deacon. And if a deacon is not present, they are done by one of the faithful. Because we live in the world. It is our job to then take the needs of the world and to bring them to God in this moment. That's our priesthood. And so the liturgy of the word here then ends with the prayers of the faithful, which is really kind of the hinge prayer. It opens now the door to the liturgy of the Eucharist. And it's a beautiful moment in this transition because what do we do with these prayers invisibly? As soon as the liturgy of the word is over, we take the prayers that we've just had for the entire world and we place them on the altar. And then we begin the liturgy of the Eucharist by then receiving the bread, the wine, and placing that as the, on the altar as well. And so we see this beautiful transition from the word, liturgy of the word, now on to the liturgy of the Eucharist. And it is there that we will continue next week, beginning the liturgy of the Eucharist and preparing the altar for this great sacrifice that's about to occur. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.